and we go about our mind. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is Chris Patterson. Chris, lovely to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. And my initial question is to ask you what's dynamizing you, what's intriguing you, what's troubling you, what are you thinking about these days? Thanks, Toby. Thank you for the invitation. It's it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, I think I'm going to say the same thing that I've heard some of your your other guests say, which because I, I have listened to, to a couple of, of podcasts, um, and and that is uh, that, that Gaza, of course, is is deeply troubling, um, and it's it's protect, I guess, particularly troubling to those of us that have. Uh, worked on war and peace issues in in the past. I think there's a um, a sense that perhaps a lot of us have now that our scholarship hasn't cut through. You know, it, 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 it you know these these big catastrophes happen, and and it feels like we should have have had more of an impact in the past to whether to, to mitigate them or to, to do something about them when they're happening. So that's, that's how I'm feeling. I, I, I'm feeling a bit powerless in, in the uh, view of this tragedy. Uh, and particularly it, it, it connects up with some of the writing I've done in the past about the safety of journalists. Um, I, I don't know if, if, if your audience will know the statistics because the media reporting doesn't talk about it very much but um 95 journalists and media workers now have been killed in the last couple of months uh that's that's according to the international federation of journalists um and that's that's an extraordinary number even though it pales relative to the 20 plus thousand who who have been killed um and this is approaching now the scale of media killings uh, for the the whole American Middle East wars of the early 2000s, um, which which was on an unprecedented scale at that time. Um, I, I did a book in 2014 um, about the, the safety of journalists particularly focused on the U.S. role in, in the killing of journalists. <clears throat> and I don't know, what we're seeing now are, are, are a lot of the same patterns that we saw 20 years ago. And I guess it's a, a stark contrast with what happened, for example, between the moment of the French departure from Vietnam and the U.S. departure from Vietnam 21 years when the statistics that one can get suggest 65 journalists were killed in 21 years. And, of course, one of the claims the United States always makes, and this applied to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, was that it wanted to preserve a free press. But there is evidence, and you've discussed this as of others, of actually targeting the wrong kind of journalist. I wonder if you could talk to us about the general issues that you confronted in that book and other research about threats to journalists. What kind of journalists doing what? Threats from what and whom? Well, what, we're, what, what we've seen in the last week in Gaza is that um, the journalists who have recently been killed by the uh, Israeli Defense Forces are uh, journalists working for Arab media, particularly Al Jazeera. And, um, and Israel has a pretty bad track record in regard to, to, to journalists for, for Al Jazeera. Um, one of their, their other key correspondents, Shireen Abu uh, Akela, was, was killed just a, less than a year ago. Yeah. Um, as well and uh what what i wrote about was the the pattern of uh american involvement in killings particularly as you point out of a set of journalists that that 
come from two groups primarily. One, one, one is the, the set of journalists working for some of the big Arab media organizations. And the other are news agency journalists. And for me, this was an interesting tie-in with my earlier work about, about news agencies, which is something I've, I've written a lot about. Um, and, and I think it was, it became almost a, a bit of a personal quest for me writing uh, about the, the, the killings of these journalists because I had come through my research to know many news agency journalists. And, um, and while I, I was quite critical of what they do in many ways, I was also very admiring of what they, of what they do. These, these are the people that put themselves in to the middle of every conflict in the world because no other journalist wants to go there and, and no other news organization wants to send their people there. So who gets sent? It's, it's the news agency journalists. And so it becomes quite disturbing when we see governments anywhere start to put a target on the backs of those particular sets of people. Um, and that seems to be what's, what's happened. I concluded in that book that, there were 46 U.S. connected media murders in that period from the late 1990s through the early 2000s, about 2007. Um, and well, as, as you know, you know the you know the academic literature. Not many people talk about this. You know, when generally, when we talk about news safety, we're we're, we're talking about uh, criminal gangs in Mexico and and and. Um, uh, authoritarian governments in in other parts of the world, but we're not tending to point the the finger at the at the United States. Uh, and it was a double concern for me because, as we know, the United States has a a habit of going around the world preaching the merits of press freedom and uh, and democracy and free speech and so on. Uh, so so there was a, an irony there that I. Uh, I wanted to draw out in, in that work. Um, one of the intriguing things that, uh, that I found intriguing and disturbing was that before this U.S. pattern of attacks on media and media installations emerged in the late 1990s, right before that, there had been a pattern of U.S. military officers going on tours of media installations, particularly CNN. There was, it was the case of NPR as well. And this didn't get a lot of attention, but uh, I, I actually knew some people in CNN who, who had hosted the, these, these soldiers who were, were coming to stand in the control room and stand in the newsroom and, and learn about the operations of international news gathering. Um, you know, ironically, it was the same time I was sort of doing my doctoral research on international news gathering. But the, these these soldiers were, were 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 doing the same thing, and within a couple of years of that, the pattern started, whereby the antenna installations of CNN, um, the the editing facilities of public broadcasters in in conflict zones, these were starting to be directly targeted by U.S. missiles. Um, and uh, it, it, it started in, in, in Serbia with the uh, destruction of, of Serbian public television, um, and then it continued uh, really much exactly the same pattern once uh, Afghanistan and then Iraq were, were invaded by the U.S. Um, and it was happening as... as Media, uh, media organizations were going to great lengths to announce their their presence, to announce their activities, to to ensure that the U.S. military knew where they were, when they were transmitting, what frequencies they were transmitting on, and so on. Um, and in, in, in at least a few instances, almost immediately after those notifications were sent to the U.S. government, a, a missile came in and and killed one or more media workers um so th there were there were some major incidents uh the 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 public broadcaster in serbia the the hotel 
in Baghdad that, that housed the world's press just uh, ahead of the U.S. invasion, um, and and another one that, that, that gained a great deal of uh, attention was the killing of two Reuters news agency journalists by a U.S. attack helicopter. Um, uh, you know, journalists were operating on the ground, and the helicopter crew strafed them. and And famously, the, the the recording was released through WikiLeaks of the helicopter crew uh, essentially congratulating themselves on on what they had done. Um, but there were many other killings along the way that were tied to to U.S. troops, or in some cases, private soldiers working for the for the U.S. Um, and nothing really came of it just just impunity for for the for the killers of these people and and and, and this is sadly the same pattern we're seeing now in, in Israel uh, the Israeli government denying that there's there's any targeting of of journalists and essentially blaming the media for being in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, despite the great lengths that media go to identify themselves and to make their presence known. Um, one argument I make in the book, and it's one I need to make carefully because it's, it's there, there just isn't a big evidence base, but the, some of the U S practices in terms of, uh, um, the deaths of, of, of journalists, seem to really mirror quite closely what Israel had been doing already for a number of years before the the the, the early 2000s um, there 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 are there are unexplained uh, deaths of journalists going back um, almost 30 years in in Israel and so it, it did seem to me I I, I wrote that uh, that some of the US, uh, actions of the military in terms of targeting particular kinds of journalists and then and then denying it and using a particular set of excuses to explain why it happened was almost exactly like what Israel had been doing for years and years ahead of that. So there appeared to even be a, a, a bit of a exchange of lessons there. Um, and one does wonder, given the American impunity during the early 2000s, uh, if perhaps that contributes to to Israel's onslaught on journalists right now <laughs> and, and, and the impunity they, they have enjoyed so far. I woke up this morning, as will of you, Chris, amongst other things, to reading Kamala Harris's Pay Into Democracy and saying it's at risk, which is one of the Biden-Harris lines. And the, I didn't open the story because I knew what it would be about, but I fantasized that it was to say the Biden-Harris administration is one of the great threats to world democracy. <laughs> and just in terms of these sorts of questions um, and the combination of hypocrisy and moralizing blended with immense force in a kind yeah. of medieval world of Christian self-belief uh, on the part of the United States so often um, has been so overwhelming. One of the things that Jim Carrey wrote about, and here I'm referring not to the Canadian actor, <laughs> the great communication scholar, was that sometimes, for example, during the American war in Vietnam, Relationships got very close between soldiers and journalists because the reporters, in some instances, saw themselves as relying on the protection of these others. And so there could be a congealed culture in some ways. But it seems to me, focusing again on the US, because this is what I know best, things go much further back than that into the whole connectedness between the New York Times, the Washington Post, the networks, CNN, the White House, the Pentagon, and K Street. K Street here standing for lobbyists. And it, so it seems to me that that's actually part of a story too, quite apart from the either discriminate or indiscriminate killing of journalists. There is this, <laughs> pardon me, remarkable connection of sources 
and supposed critics that operates in DC. And this is a point that Herbert Gantz made in the 80s with reference both to economic policymaking and to foreign policy and military policymaking. So I wondered about that image, so taking us back from the battlefield, back even from operating drones, and into the halls of power. Yeah, well, well, there's a classic uh, conundrum that, 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 that journalism theorists have talked about over the years, which is, which is that on the one hand, journalists uh, typically, um, I think it was Mark Fishman who used the, 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 the analogy of a fishing net. They, they cast their net in the same place every time. They have a very limited range of sources typically, and that makes the, the production process of the daily news much, much easier and makes it, go, makes it more efficient. Um, what happens when your sources start telling you lies? You're, you're, you're going to be reluctant uh, at first to criticize them. And of course, the, the, the New York Times and, 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 and Judith Miller sort of famously took the, 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 the U.S. line and, and later realized that that wasn't a good idea and had to kind of come out and apologize for it uh, in, in, in the post 9-11 period and the, the run up to Iraq and, you know, went for the the weapons of mass destruction propaganda hook line and sinker well well many out there were saying let's be a little bit more critical and including some some news organizations who who actually you know, bravely were a bit more critical at that time but it wasn't those voices were were submerged yeah. um so that connection to power is 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 a problem and you know one of Herman and Chomsky's famous filters that they, they hypothesized about, about how, how news is shaped in a particular direction was, was the idea of, of flack. And, uh, you know, they, they were quite wise to, to highlight that back in the 1980s when they did their, their work, because, that was well before the days of social media. Flack has become much more substantial now in terms of shaping what media says and, and, and doesn't say. People, editors are, are very much afraid of, of responses, both from their, their sources, from their politicians, from the pundits, and, and, and also from organized responses from the public. And certainly in, in, in researching uh, the coverage of the post-9-11 wars it, it, the public response that that seemed often to be orchestrated particularly on the, uh, from the american right was very influential in shaping what 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 us networks would do um one one of the stories i write about is 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 how uh cnn sent around a memo saying we, 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 we've, we've got to stop showing uh, dead bodies and, and, you know, and, and stop talking about uh, dead ordinary people in, in, in Iraq because our public doesn't like it. <laughs> and of course, you know, a number of brave journalists pushed back against that, but, but unfortunately a lot of the journalism uh, charged into that and, and, and went along with that. And, and I think that that, is a key factor in the eventual um, dichotomy that emerged between some of the Arab coverage of what was going on, particularly in Iraq, and what the American coverage was was saying. It, you know, all of a sudden Al Jazeera was out there showing a lot of really horrible stuff going on, and the rest of the media just wasn't really doing it and that really put them out there on their own um, I mean yes they were trying to to tell an Arab story because that's who their audience were but they were also generally most scholars would agree telling a truthful story and uh, and, and they, they they sat apart and and seemed like propagandists to many in the, in America because it differed so much from the story that 
that other networks, you know, the, the supposedly uh, reputable traditional media were, were telling. And that set them up as targets. Um, that, that seemed to make it quite reasonable in, uh, in official circles to say, you know, w- wouldn't it be reasonable if a missile hit their building in Kandahar and so on, as the missiles did? Rock, I wonder if we could go back a little to a topic you touched on earlier, but was a very important part of your earlier work. And that is the question of the international wire services, as they were once called, or news agencies, as we now refer to them. And just to clarify for those unfamiliar, we're talking about bodies like Agence France Press, Reuters, the Associated Press, and of course, their influence on entities like Google and Yahoo and so on. And latterly, I guess, France 24 and the BBC in terms of these powerful sources of international news around the world. And there have been others too, like United Press International. If we go back years, there were concerted attempts to try to revise this domination, to change it. Mm -hmm. I guess we got China Central Television, Al Jazeera that you've talked about, Telesur, for all their flaws and their values. But it seems to me that very much like the Hollywood studios of a century ago, not a lot's changed. What's your take on that? Um, thank you. I like talking about the news agencies. Uh, I My take is that they, they are still hugely important. Um, when I was a, a, a master's, student back at the end of the 80s i i i wrote to a little foundation that was the that was set up by the family of the old 1930s and 40s radio journalist Coltonborn, which you know some people of a, of a past generation will remember my dad remembered his name he was on the radio all the time describing world war ii um his family set up a little foundation. They gave me a grant to head off to uh, Southern Africa and, and research my master's thesis. And I wanted to look at um, how journalists talk about those frontline countries that were surrounding South Africa. And, uh, and one of the things that hit me coming out of that research was that the story of Africa is told to the rest of the world by just a few journalists, a few Western journalists. Why is that? Well, because... Western news organizations historically don't trust African journalists to tell the story of Africa. Uh, they only do it themselves, and they only do it through a handful of people historically that that, that work in a few African capitals. And so I, I had the opportunity to, to hang out with some of those journalists and follow them around. Uh, I got to, to to go to a meeting of the exiled ANC in in, uh, in Lusaka and, um, and and see how that story was then ultimately sent to the rest of the world. But that made it clear to me that uh, the television news agencies are particularly important. They're they're the ones trying to gather images of just about anything that happens in the world that has potential global news value. Um, And historically, there have been three of of these... um, Back in the in the uh, 1980s, it was worldwide television news and and Viz News, uh, which you know, fairly close to my alignment with uh, with the BBC. And those have have merged. The Viz News is sort of turned into Reuters Television, which continues to this day, and WTN sort of turned into. Um, APT and Associated Press Television, which continues to this day. And the two fight for dominance in in distributing images of what's going on in the world to all the world's broadcasters. Uh, uh, Chris, you've gone silent. Can't hear you. I'm going to pause. Take we're back again. Sorry for the interruption, folks. Sorry, the guest hit the mute button by accident. Um, what I what I was starting to say is is that I've I've written uh, 
as as explanation of what the television news agencies are that um, when something happens in the world, it's impossible for a thousand cameras to be present from every broadcaster everywhere. And that's that's why these very few organizations are dependent on to, to be there, but particularly to be in the most troubled parts of the world where it's very expensive for, for broadcasters to send their own people. Anyone going into a war zone needs to be trained. They need to be insured. They need to be protected. Uh, and the news agencies specialize in this, in, in, in putting the people into those situations. Um, but uh, I think the long and short of, 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 of that research into television news agencies is, is that these are entities that are very important because of, of the decisions they make most frequently in newsrooms in London because what they're deciding each day is what menu of stories is going to appear in every newsroom around the world. Uh, what, what, what do journalists everywhere get to choose from in terms of what they're going to say to their audiences is, is, is happening. And so it was very interesting to spend time in those newsrooms and to, to be able to sit in on meetings and to see how those decisions were made. And, and, and they were made uh, on the basis of many reasons, but very often on the basis of economic reasons and very often on the basis of what do we think our wealthiest clients, who tend to be the German broadcasters, the American broadcasters, Japanese broadcasters, people, those are the people with the big money that goes to the news agencies. What, what do they want to know? And that's interesting because the product's going out to all broadcasters everywhere, but the the big influence on what's being decided on as news or not news is is uh, are, are those big powerful broadcasters. Um, and uh, I, I suggested in that book that um, to the extent we can talk about a global public sphere using using that schema from from Habermas the the core of that global public sphere is not what other theorists have said in the past uh, I won't name names but 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 people have put forward CNN and some of these big global broadcasters as a global public sphere in the past I disagree I think it's 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 two television news agencies two newsrooms in London uh, that, that that are um, making the choices and, and by the way, I, think about. I, I gather that Associated Press has the most advanced technology in its newsroom anywhere in the world. So when people think about television, it's quite wrong to exclude those sources. They're absolutely crucial. And, uh, you know, AP's website has hundreds of millions of visitors every week. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I used to, to, to play a fun trick with my um, with my, my students and, and, and tell them that I could predict the future. And, and all I had to do was go to the websites of the of the television news agencies where they were putting there for their clients. These are the stories that we're covering now. And that means this is what's going to be on the news tomorrow. Um, they don't do that anymore. They, 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 that's now firewalled, so only the paying clients get to see that those uh, those those story planning reports. I think we need to do a Patterson Miller hacking of this. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> well, Chris, a couple of other of your important themes that I'd like us to talk about, and one of them is Africa, understood very generally, and which you've already touched on, and the other is the environment. Because a lot of us, I think, now regard the way the media report or don't report the environment and the climate crises as as much an indictment as is the indictment of their war reporting. So could we start with Africa and the work that you and others have done, many in collaboration with you, about the alternatives that are created by African journalists to the kind of intensely flawed images and stories that we get in the global north. Um, yeah, you know, there, there, there are a lot of my um, work over the years has, has focused on Africa and particularly on Southern Africa. And there's two broad tracks that, that I follow in that work. One is to, um, 
interrogate different forms of, of imperialism that, that I see happening. Uh, and I come at that in a couple of ways I can describe them. Um, but, but the other is um, um, trying to find ways to empower African voices in ways that they haven't been before. Um, mm-hmm. But in, in regard to imperialism, um, I, I think it's important that we recognize that the U.S., China, and France are imperializers on, on the African continent, that there is an, an, an ongoing imperial project. Um, I, I think that it's reasonable to, to argue that um, that platforms are, are imperial forces, you know, e- even though a lot of what particularly Silicon Valley attempts to do in, in Africa is very much about pr- promoting themselves as saviors uh, of the continent. Um, and of course we academics constantly need to turn the mirror on ourselves. Uh, academic research risks being a colonial project as well, if it isn't, if it isn't careful. Uh, but I think there's a lot being done now to enable us to be more careful, to, to make ourselves a bit more careful. And I think even in journalism, we see efforts now to be much more reflective. One, uh, one of my former PhD students, Toussaint Notius, has, has written a, 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 an article that got a lot of attention about, uh, based on his interviews with Western correspondents around Africa, but but theorizing that they are approaching news in a new way and a much more reflective way than they used to, because they know that everything they say is scrutinized and that there's going to be social media feedback on everything they say. Um, so in a way, that was a fairly hopeful take on this historical pattern that you allude to of you know, fairly dismal Western media coverage of the African continent. Um, we, with a couple of co-editors, uh, I, I did a, an anthology a few years ago uh, called Africa's Media Image, and, and, and we took that name with permission from uh, an American scholar who back in 1992 had done a book of the same name, putting together a series of, of, of bits of scholarship about how the media talk about Africa, and we thought it was time to, to revisit that and see what's changed. So one of the things we concluded has has changed is is that there are many more voices coming from the African continent to the rest of the world now, and and in large part that's um, not necessarily because the African media is more empowered than it than it once was, but it's it's largely because African populations are more empowered through social media, through the ability to, to talk back to, to uh, organizations that, that report them in negative ways, but also to um, put out their own image to a, to a, to a global mass audience. Uh, we, you know, we talked about some photography collectives in South Africa, for instance, that, that quite, actively work to to subvert the western image and to put out a a, a different image of of the the life of of, of africans um but but one of the other important chapters in that book was pointing out that uh we often misunderstand the media image of africa that that uh, while there have been dozens if not hundreds of studies of of how media talk about africa there is, it, it's a mistake to draw a broad conclusion from all of it because it all, every bit of it focused on some small element of the, of the coverage. And, uh, and the mistake scholars have often made is, is that we, we tend to say it's all bias because lots of studies found a bias. Well, lots of studies found particular problems in particular countries about particular issues, but that can't be taken to mean that in mass all, all coverage is is problematic um, we also had in that book reporters writing about how Africa historically has been a really challenging place for them to write about uh, in, in terms of dealing with autocratic governments and uh, 
uh, people who are very suspicious of reporters and so on. And so there have, you know, there are many challenges that journalists have had to face over the years. One of the other imperialisms that, I, that I, I've written a bit about and I hope to do more work on in the future is um, kind of comes back to the first topic I talked about, uh, American militarism on the African continent. Um, it, it, it hasn't been that well known or that widely discussed in the last half decade that the U.S. military operates in almost every African continent, every African country across the continent, um, and and has collaborations with with local militaries you know, right right across the continent, um, and this is this is concerning because it's 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 really um, signaling a. a a militarization or perhaps a remilitarization after you know, post-Cold War of, of, of the entire continent that the limited public opinion research we have from, from many African countries is, is that most people don't really mind it. They, they think, oh, this is a good thing. This is going to help our security. Uh, you know, we, 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 we trust the Americans to do this. Um, and so I think it's important that, that scholarship wave the flag a little bit and say, let's look at this more carefully and encourage our colleagues in journalism to, to write a bit more critically than historically has been done. This reminds me, Prof. Chris, of the old bumper sticker from the 70s, visit the United States before it visits you. <laughs> I hadn't heard that one, but yes, yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's yeah. a bit like the slogan that leftist minorities in Britain were using around the same time, which was, we are here because you were there. Yeah. So onto the environmental issues, if we could, which obviously relate to militarism, relate to imperialism, relate to the global south. Could you tell us a bit about the work that you and others have done on that front? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in a way, the the, the work I've been doing in regard to climate change connects in, in some ways to the excellent book you, you, you did with your co-author a few years ago where you, you sort of made a real effort to draw the attention of, of, of media academics to the, uh, the impact of, of their field uh, in, on climate change and the environment. Um, I had had partnerships over a couple of years with colleagues in South Africa and Kenya and, and, and later in Ghana. And we devised a research program about five years ago to apply some of the method methodologies from social sciences, particularly kind of ethnographic approaches, um, to try to better understand how media change in Africa has impacted on people's ability to learn about climate change and to act proactively in, in dealing with climate change. And the interest is particularly in rural areas where we don't typically have a lot of scholarship. It's easier to understand what's going on in the, in cities. Um, and, and, and rural areas are interesting because they are on the fringes of media change, but very often are not exposed to the same kinds of media change. So, for instance, um, a lot of the, the journalistic discussions that go on in a country don't really reach very deeply into, into rural areas. Um, and uh, the, the coverage of... of um, mobile phone uh, signals um, is is potentially limited uh, so so the the incredibly uh, burgeoning uh, mobile phone usage in in Africa often doesn't include include cities but it often doesn't include the, the rural areas so we were we were interested in going into uh, some of the remote villages that are most affected by climate change and and trying to understand how uh, people are are learning about what's happening and learning about potential solutions. And we focus particularly um, on women as sort of the key linchpins of, of rural society uh, who, who also often are excluded from, 
from scholarship. You know, it, it, it's, it's not unknown that Western researchers will go into a, an African village and talk to those the, the, the often self-appointed village leaders who are often often male and, and, and leave with an impression of what's happening. Um, so that's the kind of thing we didn't want to replicate. So what we've done in a couple of iterations of this project, which were was initially funded by the um, the British Global Challenges Research Fund, which was eventually uh, cut by the Conservative government with all the with all the aid uh, to the to the rest of the world. Um, what we did with some of the early rounds of that funding was to put uh, doctoral students in Kenya and then in Ghana. Uh, into some rural villages in particularly vulnerable areas, vulnerable from climate change, and spend a couple of weeks actually um, talking to a wide variety of people, but particularly uh, women agriculturalists, uh-huh. and uh, and actually spending time. Some did a bit of ethnographic research in there, following people around during their day and understanding how how they understand and interact with with their environments. So we've been able to feedback. Um, useful information to some uh, Western projects that are working on improving weather forecasting, for instance. We have some mm-hmm. project out of Leeds that does that. Um, tried to feed back to uh, local meteorological agencies and to, to, to local governments. And that, that process of trying to feed back is still ongoing, uh, as, as well as constant search for more funding to keep the project going and hoping we can expand it beyond Ghana and, and Kenya to, to other parts of, of the continent. Um, but, you know, this, this is all in a way part of giving more voice to uh, people on the African continent who are typically excluded from the conversation. Um, and, and, and one of the big conclusions we, we found is, is, is that, Official bodies, both NGOs and governments, can do a better job of listening, creating the an infrastructure mm-hmm. to better listen to the the, the voices of, of the people we were talking to about what their actual needs are and actual concerns are. Um, but yeah, my you know, my impression in, in in Kenya particularly was was that, that climate change is everywhere. You know, people. You know, even in the urban areas, just feel it every day. Things things aren't happening the way they used to happen, and in the countryside, you know, in the city, people can deal with that. But in the in the countryside, the the impacts are are enormous. You know, if the rain doesn't come at a certain time, you know, everything dies, and uh, and, and no one eats. Um, so, there are important questions to be asking. Prof, we've got about ten minutes left for our conversation. I'd like to pose two questions to you, if I may, and then throw it to you to add anything you'd like to. And my first one gets back to one of the opening remarks you made about feeling powerless and feeling as though some element of academic responsibility had not been followed through on or not been successful. I wondered if you could talk a bit about that, about what it is that should be the responsibility of the intellectual and what to do if your message isn't having an effect? Do you have any lessons you're drawing from the sense of hopelessness that I think you're experiencing with reference to current world conflicts? Yeah. Um, no, no, I don't. I, 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 I learn from academics like you that are better than I am at being a sort of public intellectual and and getting your voice out there. Uh, And and I think that's something all of us uh, can always do a better, a better job with. Um, One of the efforts that I have been intermittently involved with over the years is within UNESCO, which has authority within the United Nations over I can't say authority over journalism, but authority over the uh, uh, official response of, of, of governments to, to journalism. And they have, to their great credit, put, put a lot of effort uh, in, into fighting impunity over, the, over attacks on journalists, um, trying to create mechanisms to, uh, to, to protect journalists to allow journalists to 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 better report attacks when when they happen um 
and and they have worked very closely with a number of academic researchers in the in the last decade or two uh, to to try to bring academic research into that process of improving the lot of of journalists around the world. So that that's that's one thing we can do. Um, you know, and 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 I've been involved in some of those efforts. Um, we can try to get our some of our big conclusions about big problems out to a wider audience than our academic publications typically do. I mean, you know, the, the, my, my, my book probably, well, didn't get an enormous number of readers, but when I took bits of that book and put them into uh, a, an article on the conversation, uh, this was, this was following the, uh, the assassination by Turkey of uh, Amal Khashoggi, uh, the, the the Washington Post columnist. Um, when when I did a story about that, you know, some tens of thousands of people got to see that research and got to re- reflect on the role of the of the U.S. Um, as well as authoritarian governments like Turkey in the killing of journalists. So um, that's an important thing we, we can do. Uh, and the well. house of Saud, I think, as well in that case, right? Yes. Yeah, that, yes, yes. Of course, Turkey was the, was the site of the assassination. The, you know, you're absolutely right. It was the, 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 the assassins came from, 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 from Saudi Arabia. Um, I'm working on another piece right now uh, about a piece of research uh, I, I did with some colleagues here last year which is about the fintech industry in mm-hmm. in uh on the african continent which is part of this broad platformization of, of life in general um and and financial technologies have been widely celebrated as very as, as emancipatory uh across across africa but a great deal of <clears throat> well a, a fair bit of scholarship in particular people from a political political economy tradition are warning that some of these technologies are really dangerous and 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 they they are they, they promise to create a, a massive debt crisis along the the lines of the of the 2008 crisis in the west um the a massive crisis of data privacy um that, that that generally there are a lot of really negative effects on the horizon in Africa by the uptake by maybe a billion people in in, in the coming years of of these technologies, and we wanted to look at how media on the African continent are talking about them. So identified a set of key newspapers who do this kind of coverage, and and found that the story is almost entirely c- celebratory. Uh, it, you know, it, it's it, the journalists are very much taking taking a, a leading role in selling these uh, technologies and sanitizing these technologies uh, for for the public. Um, so we we write that this is this is a bit dangerous, and, and and scholars particularly could be writing more about it. So hoping to get that work publicized a bit more, and and perhaps in a in a piece in the conversation in Africa uh, to 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 spread the the, the word about uh, those kinds of risks and bring some critical scholarship to 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 an ongoing trend. And my last question, Chris, is to ask you how you go about your research. You've given some clues in what you've already told us, but if I'm a young doctoral student coming to you and saying, Professor Patterson, I really like your work. I want to research X or Y. What are the things you offer to them as ways of proceeding? Uh, I'm I'm an advocate of of, of um, multi method research. You know, I like to 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 apply the the, the best method for. Um, any given problem, but I'm also an advocate of of triangulation and applying different approaches to any one problem in order to, to come at it in different ways. Um, and you know, I, I, I work with people who use a variety of approaches, but I've also throughout my my career that's getting a, a bit long at this stage um, have been a fairly vocal advocate of 
the ethnography of media production. That's sort of one of the, the main things I'm, I'm known for. Um, essentially with the uh, premise that we can't really write about what happens in, uh, in the mass media when we only look at the texts of media. We, we, we actually need to uh, understand directly the process of putting our media together, whether that's news or whether it's Hollywood movies or, or, or anything else. Um, and that's a process that's constantly under threat because corporate owners of media say to managers of newsrooms, what are you mad letting an academic in to look at what you're doing? You know, why, why, why would we do that? We don't have any obligation to do that. Uh, so, so we're not generally welcome and uh, we, we have to fight to get that access. And if we get that access, who's going to pay uh, our salaries to, to, to sit in those places and watch what's going on. Uh, many institutions don't, don't do that anymore. So there was a, a, you know, as you'll recall, there's a grand tradition of, of ethnographies of newsrooms back in the uh, maybe the 1970s and into the 1980s, but uh, there's been relatively little of it since. So, so I do. I spend a, I spend a good bit of my time um, in, in in our professional associations and, and other venues whenever I can get uh, saying why this is important work and encouraging students to do that kind of work. And now. Chris, to finish off, I'd like to hand things to you to see what you might wish to add to or perhaps even subtract from the material we've already covered. Add or subtract? Um, you know, you've given me a chance to talk about most of the things uh, that, that, that I do. Um, I don't have a lot to add. I, I, I think that uh, we need to keep asking the kinds of questions that I know you've asked in a lot of your, your, your scholarship, which are uh, uh, about critically questioning the, uh, the hierarchies upon which our, our society is built and functions and, and questioning conventional wisdom and, and, and asking uh, why why we tend to go down certain paths over and over again, as, as, as I'm doing now and worrying about in regard to this, to the killing of journalists, you know, why, why do we keep doing these things? And, and, and what are the, 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 the power structures of the world that, uh, that resist change. Um, and, and I think our, our role is to uh, continue to do that kind of work. And, and we must hope and that our, that our institutions enable us to continue to, to continue to do that kind of work. I think we need to keep speaking up for the value of this kind of uh, social science, uh, and uh, which, which often, and particularly in, in here in the UK, comes, comes in under question uh, by, by the powers that be. Well, thank you so much. That's a great answer and a wonderful manifesto. <laughs> I'd like to appreciate, show appreciation to you for joining us in the pod today and hope that you'll come back sometime soon. Appreciate it very much, Toby. Thank you.